Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is David Feingold, and welcome to The Future of Higher Education, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm the president of Chatham University and the host of the Future of Higher Education channel. And today, I'm really excited that we have with us President Richard Miller, the founding president of Olin College of Engineering. Dr. Miller, thank you for being with us today. Uh, Thank you, David. It's my privilege. Rick, maybe you could start out by telling our listeners a little bit about your your background growing up, where you grew up, what your educational pathway was. Sure. Um, Well, it's sort of an unlikely pathway for somebody doing what I'm doing. Uh, There are no academics in my family. I grew up on a very small farm uh, in central California in a town called Tranquility. It's very tranquil there. There are about 650 people, if you count the chickens and the dogs, and it's about uh, 40 miles to the nearest hospital. Um, My dad was born on the kitchen table of the house I grew up in. My grandfather homesteaded the place, Um, and my brother and I were the only two who really have left the region. Um, I went to the University of California uh, at Davis, uh, which was most like the town I grew up in. graduated in aerospace engineering because I wanted to get as far away from the farm as I could. Um, My dad told me, if you don't go to college, this is what you'll do for the rest of your life. And I thought that sounded like a good idea. Um, I graduated, though, uh, in a year when the aerospace industry was down, and I decided to go on to graduate work. Uh, I went to MIT for a master's degree um, in mechanical engineering got interested in earthquakes, of all things, came back to California, finished my PhD at Caltech in Pasadena, uh, and then started teaching at the University of California at um, Santa Barbara, where I um, taught for several years and then got a phone call from our friends at USC in Los Angeles, who was building an earthquake engineering team. Um, we, they are called the Caltech Mafia within USC. And uh, they recruited me back to Southern Cal. And I spent 13 years in uh, living in Pasadena, working at USC. Um, and I, I wound up with a joint appointment in aerospace engineering and in civil engineering. Um, then left after becoming associate dean there uh, for uh, University of Iowa, where I um, was chosen as the dean of engineering. And Iowa is a very interesting place. I mean, in some ways, it was reminiscent of where I grew up, Um, but it's very different. I mean, the way we looked at it, uh, Los Angeles is um, massive, and it has a lot of things going on, including in those days, not just earthquakes, but drive-by shootings, uh, Rodney King riots, all kinds of stuff, difficult school districts. And when we moved to a place where the headlines in the local newspaper are focused on the weather, you must, must be in the right place. Um, we stayed there through the 90s. Um, it was a great place to raise kids. Our younger daughter was six when we moved there. And then I got uh, nominated for this position at Iowa, which I almost didn't follow up on. I mean, this, this, place, this position at Olin, which I almost didn't follow up on um, because it wasn't yet a place. It was just an idea. And things were going quite well in Iowa. Um, but I've never been a person who follows directions very well. And after getting a lot of advice from friends telling me not to do this, 
um, we decided to go. The hardest question, of course, was persuading my wife uh, to go back to Massachusetts because when we were there uh, earlier in my first year of marriage and I, my master's degree, uh, it was a pretty rough landing from Tranquility, California to Cambridge, Massachusetts in those days. But I told we were here for one reason. We had a friend when I was a student um, at MIT many years ago who lived in Wellesley, Massachusetts, who's, which is kind of in the suburbs. Um, there are lots of trees and grass. It's a very, um, you know, sedate, safe uh, community. And we went there for a barbecue once. So when I told her that these Olin people asked us to go, I said, it's not Cambridge. It's Wellesley. Um, and it's almost Wellesley. And so that's how we made it here. That's, that's great. Um, and tell me, I mean, obviously, not only the transition from Iowa to, to Wellesley, Mass., but also thinking about the role. You, you had been a successful academic, obviously. you become a leader within the school. Had you thought about becoming a, a, a college or university president before? And was that something you, you was figured into your career plans, or was it just this unique opportunity that, that manifested? No, I I thought I would be a cotton farmer in California. I never imagined I'd be doing what I'm doing. Um, I certainly never imagined being a, a college president. Um, but what happened was along the way, I had learned a number of things about me, I suppose, that made me feel uncomfortable in the role I was in. Uh, as you know, I mean, I was in all R1 universities and two AAU institutions. Now they're all three AAU. Um, it's all about PhD education. And it's about winning the Nobel Prize and getting research grants. And we have these these other kids running around on campus, which we call undergraduates, who um, who you have to deal with. And to me, that always was the wrong emphasis. There, these these knowing what they went through to get there, uh, I could not help but pay attention. So, and and I'll just tell you one story about um, the transition from Southern Cal to Iowa, which began to make me know I'm, I'm probably not going to be as happy staying in the, in the um, large AAU institution world. Um, while I was teaching at Southern Cal, I had experience as a consultant in, while I was living in Santa Barbara for UCSB uh, for an aerospace firm. So we wound up designing spacecraft that uh, actually was a competitor with JPL. That's why I was really interested yesterday in watching the Perseverance land on Mars because I, I have a former student that's on the design team there and so on. So um, anyway, um, spacecraft. So I got asked to design, to teach a course in spacecraft structural design. Um, and I knew enough about it because I was not trained as a spacecraft designer in, in graduate school that you need help. So I reached out to... Um, a Rolodex of friends that I'd worked with in the consulting world. And I just asked them one simple question. Please write down on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, the technical outline of a real problem that you're working on today. Forget all the budget and the legal stuff, just the nugget of the technical problem and send it to me because I'm going to teach a course next spring and I want a folder of problems and I'm going to have students and teams. I'm going to ask them to pick one of these and then they're going to do their best to try and solve the technical problem for the semester. Uh, at the end of the semester, we'll have you folks come in and you can watch what we did. Uh, the kids will stand on stage and they'll tell you, here's our answer. And when we're done, we'll all go to lunch and you'll sit with the team that worked on your problem and you can tell them how it really gets solved. That's the big idea. Simple. Something really strange happened. 
So the very first group of students who presented stood up and they worked on something that had to do with space station. And this guy in the back of the room stood up and he said, you know, you kids have stumbled onto our patent in this field. Uh, and it's worth a $200 million contract to our company. This is how we be beat out our competitor. And our kids came up to me at the break with big eyes and they said, Dr. Miller, we have a couple questions for you. What's a patent? And by the way, <laughs> how do you make money from ideas like this? I mean, there's nothing in the engineering curriculum that has dollar signs in it. It's all like vectors and calculus. But, and I said, oops, they're right. Um, I went across the street to the business school. Um, Marshall School is a really great uh, business school in Southern Cal. Yeah, I was guys, a faculty member there. Uh, so you know this. Um, yes. By the way, all of this is historical. By this time, if you're, a, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about going to school at USC, do not hesitate. They have all the materials now developed. They're a world leader in this field. But, but 25, 30 years ago, they, it was all new. So anyway, they, um, they said, yeah, we have a lot of courses in intellectual property and new venture creation, marketing and managing in a new enterprise. Uh, but, but your kids could never take these classes. And I said, well, why? Well, they're in the MBA program, and you can't get into the MBA program until you graduated and worked for two years. And these are undergraduates. I mean, they haven't had Econ 100. So, you know, how is this possibly going to work? And I'm sitting there puzzling. I said, well, what a problem that is. I mean, this is like what engineers actually do. And then I ran into my dean in the hallway, and he said, Rick, what are you trying to do? And I explained it. And he said, well, don't you realize if, if you succeed somehow, what's going to happen is that the engineering students are going to wind up enrolling in business courses. I said, duh, that's the point. He said, no, think of it. If they start enrolling in the business classes, then the tuition dollars are going to go to the business team and our budget's going to go down. And uh, It's just like nuts. Um, it's not long after that is when I decided to go to Iowa because Iowa had not yet discovered revenue center management. So um, so I teamed up with the business dean who was trying to get entrepreneurship planted in his business school because entrepreneurship is not, this is surprising, I realize, entrepreneurship is not native to business schools. Um, business schools talk about theoretical economics uh, and they publish in papers and journals, just like engineering design is not native to engineering schools. They talk about calculus and physics, but they don't actually make things. So this is like a music school that, you know, in which nobody plays the piano. Um, anyway, we got together. We started a program, which is, it's just, you know, many years now. It's been going on. It's the Papa John Entrepreneurial Center at the University of Iowa. It's sort of jointly run by the School of Medicine, the School of Business, and the School of Engineering. And we created the first curriculum in the country for entrepreneurship for engineering. It's a technological entrepreneurship uh, certificate program. Um, and I was a willing customer. I provided him 50K or something like that. And he provided access to four or five courses for our engineering students. And you know, it's not that entrepreneurship had not been taught before, but it was primarily a business plan competition that, you know, it's like saying physicists are going to create an automobile industry what they will do is have a, a car design competition. And if you win it, you know, you can start a company, but we don't actually have courses in it. Um, so we started courses in it. And, and that's about the time I heard from the Olin people. And they said, we're planning to put this 
this new school that we want to design um, in Massachusetts. And we're thinking about locating it directly across the street from Babson College. And Babson College is a very well-known business school in entrepreneurship. In fact, I believe it's been rated number one in, by the U.S. News for over a quarter of a century. Uh, with a lot of competition here, you know, like right down the road at Harvard and MIT. Um, and I happen to know of a faculty member at Babson who started their program. His name was Jeff Timmons. Just amazing. He was a refugee from Harvard. He had left Harvard and gone to Babson to start this new total focus on entrepreneurship. And I had colleagues in Iowa who said, what? You have an opportunity to spend time with Jeff Timmons? I don't care whether Olin works or not. You'll learn a tremendous amount if you hang out with Jeff. And so I said, well, it can't be too bad. Um, and then I got a letter. In fact, I just ran into it not long ago because we moved from one house to another. And I got all these letters and boxes from um, Mary Sue Coleman, who was the president of the University of Iowa at the time. She was my mentor there. Since then, of course, she went off to be the president of the University of Michigan for a dozen years. And then she's just recently stepped down as the president of the AAU. She said in five pages, single spaced, all the reasons why I shouldn't go to Iowa. I mean, to Olin. Uh, this is like, you know, what? They don't have tenure? No one will ever take you seriously again if you do that. They're not going to have a PhD program. So, wow, this is like, why would you even consider doing something like this? And you could see I didn't follow directions very well. Uh, and here we are. That's great. So I'm, I'm curious in, in terms of not just taking a, a radically new role as a, as a president, but, but doing it in an institution that was brand new. Um, as you made that transition, um, what, what were the biggest sort of challenges you faced in sort of coming up to speed for that new role? And I was curious in, in reading one of the things you sent um, that, that you, you mentioned that you didn't go to any courses. And obviously right down the road at Harvard, they have a, a longstanding one for new presidents. I, I went because you know I was looking for any notes I could get. So I, I'm curious your decision you know, not to do that. And how did you go about, you know, getting up to speed for the, this exciting new world? It's called diving in the deep end and moving your hands and arms around. Um, the, number one, the courses that are around uh, for new college presidents assume that the college is not new, you're new. And so they're teaching you about how the structures of the university work and so on. And of course, we didn't, when I came to Olin, it was not yet a place. It was actually just an idea. Uh, there were these four directors of the Olin Foundation and me. None of them, by the way, is an engineer, and none of them has ever worked in higher education. What could go wrong with that? Um, my wife was a little smarter than me at that point. But um, I, I don't. I never dreamed of starting a college or being a college president. Um, this is not as much a college as it is a cause. And the issue is, having watched carefully for decades, how higher education works at that point at three different institutions, there's certain patterns that develop and there's certain uh, needs that are just going unmet. Um, and I had some sense from having stumbled into it by experimenting in undergraduate courses myself, like this course in entrepreneurship, that experiential learning could be a big deal. And that when you work in industry, because I had done this um, for, for 15 years as a consultant in Southern California, Nobody solves a problem using the calculus book sitting at your desk. It's always in a team. I mean, 
there, there, you know, I'll just tell you one other short story about how I figured out pretty early I really didn't want to be an engineer. Um, so when I grew up, you know, on the cotton farm, uh, not having ever met an engineer or a person with a PhD, I thought the epitome of engineering was probably the people who designed the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Magnificent, big structure. So I thought I wanted to be a structural engineer because we had a big wood pile in the backyard and I kept building things. Um, one summer, while I was an intern at UC Davis, I got a chance to work for the Public Works Department in Fresno in bridge design. I thought, oh my gosh, this is my dream job. Um, what had happened is that in the previous winter, some culverts had washed out on the, on the rural highways and they needed to rebuild them. So, man, I brought my slide rule. I brought these books on structural design and I was just, just so excited. And so I showed up the first day and they brought out this aerial photograph of this bridge that had washed out. And they said, we want you to fix this one to design the replacement bridge. And I said, well, that's cool. And they put down this big book in front of me. They called the bridge book. I said, man, this must be something really special. Um, what's in it? And so I looked inside. There are no formulas at all. Nothing. It's a catalog. That's really what it's like a big Sears catalog. So you thumb through the pages until you find one that looks closest to the one that just got washed out. There's a serial number in the upper right hand corner. And there's two little formulas for computing the total volume of concrete and the total tonnage of steel based on like three numbers, you know, the length, the width, and the height. And that's it. And you fill out the serial number on this form and you hand it to the contractor's department and they order it. You know, that some contractor builds it according to that specification. I said, well, when do I get to use my slide rule? And it's, oh, we couldn't, we couldn't have you do that because you might make a mistake. And if you make a mistake, then people will get hurt. I said, well, how disappointing is that? Why am I spending all this time with calculus in school? So I asked, well, who gets to make the bridge book? Because that must be the cool guys, right? And I said, oh, they're up in Sacramento in the transportation department. So I said, well, I'm a sophomore. I guess I'm going to have to get a master's degree. You really want to be an engineer. And they kept moving the goalposts. So I later figured out that um, if you are in Sacramento doing this bridge book, all you're doing is a certain kind of homework problem over and over and over again, changing the geometry a little bit. Let's make it 30 degrees instead of 45 degrees. It's how boring. So I really did not want to be uh, an engineer. And our, our curriculum is just misaligned. What really matters, though, is the ability to work in a group uh, and to work effectively, to, um, to communicate with people who are not engineers. Um, I mean, here's another illustration, I don't know if you have time for this, but another summer working at the same uh, public works department, we, I was, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, about, I was born about the time that the wheel was invented. So all these technologies that we take for granted today were just new, including the digital computer when I was an undergraduate. So uh, I knew how to program a computer and most of the old time engineers in the department were just getting used to it. So they said, let's give this problem to this kid. And this was a problem of relocating or, re, you know, finding the location for the next landfill site for trash disposal from the county of Fresno. Um, and so what does this involve? Well, you have to find the coordinates on a map of the space, which is just the right place to do this. By the way, it's not inside the city, so you have to truck it out. And it's a big city, so there's a place in the middle somewhere that you have a transfer station. 
And then there's the cost of transportation that we're worried about. How many, you know, what's the cost per ton mile uh, to do this? And what's the cost of the land and so on. So anyway, I just, it's not hard to, so I programmed it, right? And it came out, these coordinates, X and Y. And we put them on the map and here it was. I saw some spot, it's uh, in the farm country outside of the city. What's amazing as I look back on it is the, um, the uh, director of public works took this very seriously and they actually built a proposal for the board of supervisors that needed to go to public review. Public review is a very important part of civil engineering, which was not part of my courses. So what happened to public review? Well, the director of public works went in front of an auditorium with a whole bunch of people that live in the county and he put a map up on the wall and he said, there it is. There's the place where we want to put the landfill and here's the place where we want to put the transfer station. Some hands went up right away. So what the folks who lived near the transfer station, which was right in the center of the city, happened to be Hispanic, if I remember correctly. And they said, there you go, doing it again. Last time you came here to put the prison for the, for the county. Now you're going to put the trash transfer station. Is there any conscience in you people? You're just looking for ways to persecute us. And it's like, maybe it's not just the cost. And then there's another pan goes up of a farmer out in the fields. And he says, oh, you know the spot that you've identified for the final landfill? Did you know that the person who lives across the street is one of the members of the Board of Supervisors? Um, maybe there's some politics involved in this, too. Um, note to self, engineering is not just about equations, okay? Um, understanding human dimensions to the problem. Understanding the ability to stand in front of a group and to develop a consensus um, is way more important than having some advanced degree in computer science. Um, and later on, when I was doing consulting in the aerospace field, uh, I also found out all of those cool graduate courses that I took at Caltech and MIT, which were really state-of-the-art, were absolutely no help in designing some um, really unorthodox spacecraft, because uh, here's the deal. The, the equations are great for, for telling you answers to problems that you can draw a picture of. But what if you can't draw a picture of it because you don't know what it looks like yet? Um, and then, you, then they're, they're useless. They're a power tool with no blueprints. Um, we had to design a um, spacecraft to chase Halley's Comet. Uh, JPL was working on the solar sail which is a one square mile kite that flies in the solar wind. Um, it's a big, heavy thing. You, you have to launch it from the space shuttle in multiple loads because it's too big. Uh, we were going to beat that by making something very light. So we designed the, uh, we being this whole company, not me, um, the um, heliogyro. And the heliogyro is a helicopter that flies in the solar wind. It has, I think, in those days, the parameters were 12 blades, and each blade was seven miles long. So this thing is 14 miles in diameter, and it's spin-stabilized. Uh, it doesn't weigh very much because it's made out of this you know, really, really thin mylar film, um, and it, so it doesn't need any structure to hold it up. It's, uh, its centrifugal force stiffens it, so that that's all you need. Actually, helicopter blades benefit from that too. But um, nothing that we had learned uh, in, you know, in the physics and math classes would tell us how to design a 
a seven mile long piece of mylar film that will fold up into the cargo bay and unfold without getting snagged. I mean, we wound up getting a uh, origamist from Japan to help us fool with the, the physics of folding things. That's design. So design, teamwork, communication. And those happen to be the three most common complaints about the engineering workforce from the industry for probably 50 years. And universities haven't paid much attention to it. So when this opportunity at Olin came up, I just felt called to do something. I knew what the problems were from having spent enough time. I knew what we did in the university was not the right thing to do. I didn't know anything about how to organize an institution. Um, luckily, I had a fabulous um, good fortune in recruiting the CFO to join me. He wound up being a colleague for essentially 20 years. Um, he really is the guy who can listen to these esoteric conversations in a faculty room, go home overnight and come back with a spreadsheet and say, here's how you might organize it and pay for it, uh, which was great. I did have one mentor. Um, the only person I found who had started anything like what Olin was trying to do and was still alive to talk about it is the founding president of um, Harvey Mudd College, Joe Platt was his name. Uh, Joe was a physicist, and he was the first employee there. I went to visit him. And of course, it's quite a different. Uh, it's, in a, it's in a community in the Claremont schools, which had already existed. And so there's, it's not a, a great fit. But he had two principles, which I think were fun, fundamentally important. Number one thing he said, he says, you're doing this because you want to try something new. Um, let me warn you, there's no more powerful force for conservatism than having something to conserve. And right now you don't have anything to conserve, so your people are going to be really creative and that'll go great. He says, mark my words, in 10 years, they're going to believe in what they're doing and you're going to have a heck of a time prying their white knuckles off the steering wheel. Um, and that turned out to be absolutely true. So we developed almost immediately a founding principle for the school that at first literal and now more general, every, everything at Olin has an expiration date, um, even the curriculum. So don't fall in love with it because it's going to change periodically by design. Uh, so that was one principle. And the other principle that we had was a management principle, which has really proven true many times. Whenever you're going to make a decision, um, it always has three consequences. There's a, there's a quality consequence. How, how good is this going to be? Um, there is a schedule consequence. How long will it take to get it done? And there's a cost consequence. How much you're going to have to pay for this. Um, everything from picking the tile on the roofs to the, you know, how elaborate will your math curriculum be? All of that. But when you put, put together a board of trustees, uh, almost ubiquitously, we, we bring in board members who are successful at what they do, and they're almost always from business. It's very rare, actually, to have more than one or maybe two trustees with any background in the academic world. Um, people who are successful in the business world are really aware of the need for cost and the need for schedule. But because they're not from the academic world, they 
aren't even really sure they can tell the difference between a really superior learning environment and an average learning environment. I mean, after all, we were all students once, so we're all necessarily experts in what happens in education. Uh, or you simply go to U.S. News and you say, who's the number one school? Go copy their curriculum and that'll make you great, which, of course, it doesn't happen. So what? So how does this affect you? Well, here's how. And, and Joe explained it this way. When they first started their institution, uh, they had to recruit students and they announced the date on which they were going to teach their first classes. Um, the board said, how much money do you need, Joe? And how many people are you going to hire um, to meet the deadline? And by the way, how, how these are going to be great students, right? He said, wait, 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 right there. Don't ask me how many students we're going to have. Ask me what quality of students we're going to have. Because you can't have it both ways. Yeah. If you decide that you know, the kids are going to be at a certain level of quality and you set that threshold and you're just not going to recruit below that, then the market will determine how many people of that quality apply and actually want to come. So he says, if you design this to have 100 students, then we'll give up on the ability to determine the quality of the institution. And that's the whole reason we're starting the school, is to develop the quality of the institution. So he says, give me a break. Give me several years of freedom to float the number of students to meet the quality after maybe three or four years, reputation will get out that, oh, to go to this school, you need that kind of quality to get in. And then we'll attract in the applicant pool the people that we need. Um, so I learned more from Joe, I think, than I would have from the Harvard course on, on new presidents, because um, it's designed for a different kind of institution. Absolutely. And I'm curious when you were out there, because you know, I was a faculty member that when we started the Keck Graduate Institute and Hank Riggs, who was a successor to um, uh, Joe, not directly, but a couple of presidents later, he actually has a lot of parallels with your career. So he, you know, started the industrial engineering and business program at Stanford and then founded the Keck Graduate Institute at a very similar time to to Olin. So I was curious, did, did you have any interactions with Hank as you were both sort of doing this parallel task? I did, actually. Um, I, you know, I, had, I met Hank after I had met Joe, but um, Hank was such a kindred spirit that we wound up recruiting him as a trustee at Olin for a while. Um, and Hank also helped us recruit one of the most important and influential vice presidents in founding Olin is a guy named uh, Duncan Murdoch. Uh, Duncan was the dean of admission at Harvey Mudd for many years. Uh, he came from, then he went to Southern Cal, USC. And, um, and Hank had suggested, why don't you look at Duncan as a person who really understands how to recruit the sort of students that you want. And much to my surprise, he was the first person we recruited. Um, it was relatively, it was surprisingly easy to get Duncan to relocate. I didn't think that would happen. Um, so it's, it's always this case. It took us about a week to convince Duncan to leave. It took us about a month and a half to convince Mary to come with him because um, their grandchildren were just being born and she didn't want to leave and so on. He came and stayed with us until after the first graduating class, which was really fundamentally set us on the right path. Um, Hank, Hank is a, you know, was a brilliant guy, as you know. Um, 
and he's, his voice is something that we miss um, a lot. It is a number of the things that Hank has written, which I still keep on my top drawer, um, is a uh, paper, an editorial that he wrote for the New York Times on uh, the price of prestige. And it was an economic analysis of how the public makes a decision about academic quality and how that impacts the price of higher education today. It's still just as relevant today as it was when he wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. And and your last question for, for this session. So your your time with Hank and also with Harvey Mudd, was that part of the inspiration for the the, the capstone projects with companies? Because Hank definitely borrowed for KGI the model he had seen work so well at Harvey Mudd. And it seems like a lot of parallels to what what, what was adopted at Olin. Absolutely. Um, I had I knew about Harvey Mudd when I was at Southern Cal. It turns out that the National Science Foundation had a program called the Engineering Education Coalitions Program in the 1990s. And the purpose of that was to try to get groups of universities to work together on these fundamental issues about teamwork, design, and, and entrepreneurial thinking in undergraduate education. And I was put in a team with, um, with Sam Tannenbaum, who was the first dean of the faculty at Harvey Mudd. He was a dean for like 20 years. Just loved Sam. He's like, you could learn so many things from him. And he was such a voice of wisdom in our boardroom. Um, anyway, we knew about the clinic and how powerful that is. And, that, and then later, actually, um, I recruited to Olin uh, a Harvey Mudd faculty member, a young up-and-comer who was just brilliant. Michael Moody was his name. Michael was the chairman of mathematics. Um, and I think he kind of outgrew the opportunities available at Harvey Mudd, so he probably would have gone somewhere. And it just happened to be at the time Olin was starting, so it gave him a chance. And he came to us after I invited him to just take a look at what we're doing. He came to us on a sabbatical for a year, and he never went back. And we, we made him our dean of faculty. Um, and he was just amazing, his instinct. So obviously, he knew the clinic on the inside. He had built the clinic in the math department. Um, and of course, the clinic is not just engineering. It's spread through other parts. Um, yeah. And in case your audience is not totally clear about what the clinic is, um, it's a capstone in the senior year in which students work on real problems in industry where money changes hands. Uh, industry has a stake in it. And they often develop patents and they develop hardware that creates new, new divisions of industries in many cases. And it's, it's, um, in, in fact, Harvey Mudd won the, the, um, the Harvey Mudd faculty who were there at the time, won the Gordon Prize of the National Academy of Engineering for that uh, some years ago. So what we did with that as a starting point is that we worked backwards from that. And Olin built a program in which it's not just about the capstone, which we call scope. It's our, our flavor of that of the clinic, but we our Olin kids complete 25 to 35 design build projects through four years, which is, I think, excessive, but I mean, we did it because we <laughs> could do it. Um, yeah. And when they graduate and they walk across the stage, they don't just have a diploma. They have a three ring binder with about 25 tabs in it. And each tab has a photograph and a video of the hardware they built and the team that built it. And then there's some testimonials from the the client that they built it for. And when you talk to folks in industry, that's the language that they speak. I mean, a GPA and a transcript is okay. 
but they don't really know what goes into the cores, but they know what goes into building hardware. Um, so Harvey Mudd had a huge influence on us, as, and, and along with some other schools, too, along the way. That's great. Well, Rick, I, I'm sorry we have to stop there, but but I'm really looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for this. Sure. Thank you, David. 